I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser here. Way back in 2008, I wrote an article called The Chemical Imbalance Myth, which challenged the dominant idea that depression is caused by chemical imbalance in the brain and changes in serotonin levels. As you can imagine, it was a pretty controversial article, uh, probably received more comments than just about anything else I've ever written, along with quite a lot of hate mail uh, and pretty strong attacks, uh, despite the fact that the article was very well referenced and included many links to peer-reviewed evidence. And since then, that theory has only fallen apart further, uh, most recently with a landmark paper that was published by Dr. Joanna Moncrief and colleagues. Uh, it was a, a meta-analysis, meta so it was a, a review of meta-analyses that have been published on this topic, and it just systematically uh, debunked the idea that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance and changes in serotonin levels. So that's the topic of this show, and I'm really excited to welcome Dr. Joanna Moncrief as my guest. She's a professor of critical and social psychiatry at University College London and works as a consultant psychiatrist in the NHS. And she has been researching and writing about the overuse and misrepresentation of psychiatric drugs and about the history, politics, and philosophy of psychiatry for many, many years. Uh, I, I first came across her work in the early 2000s, which is what led to me writing that series of articles um, starting in around 2007 or 2008. And since then, I have followed her work for all of that time and continue to be just blown away by how persistent this myth is in the complete absence of evidence to support it. So I just want to warn uh, listeners that this episode could be provocative if you're currently taking an antidepressant. And if, you, uh, if this is news to you, that this theory of chemical imbalance is not supported by the evidence, I just want to gently invite you to listen to this with an open mind, to not take it personally, to understand that there are forces at work that, you know, namely pharmaceutical companies that have invested tens if not hundreds of millions or even billions of dollars in perpetuating this hypothesis, uh, which 
that that's even a generous term to use a hypothesis it's really more of a marketing campaign that has been used to sell more antidepressant drugs and again this this could be disturbing uh, i want to give you fair warning uh, but i also hope that you can listen to it and take in some of the information because ultimately i believe it's incredibly empowering to learn that depression is not some uh, permanent thing that we can't change some some uh, flaw in our brain that can only be addressed by taking a psychiatric drug and that we actually have quite a bit of agency um, over our own mental health and the ability to make progress without taking these drugs in many cases. So I realize that's a longer intro than normal, but this is, I think, a very important episode. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dr. Moncrief, and I have the deepest respect for her work and her persistence in the face of great opposition, not opposition to the science, which nobody really seems to be able to challenge, but just to the general idea, um, because as Upton Sinclair once said, it's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary is dependent on him not understanding it. And I think that's largely what's going on here with this particular theory. There are just too many, too much money in, invested in perpetuating it. And also, you know, probably lots of careers and reputations on top of that. So my hope is that as uh, Dr. Moncrief and others who are publishing, you know, very, very detailed and um, complete analyses that debunk this theory that over time uh, the public perception will shift. That's my hope. And I hope that this podcast can play some small role in that happening. So without further ado, let's dive in. Dr. Joanna Moncrief, thank you for being here. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> looking forward to our conversation. So yes, I've been really looking forward to this because as we were chatting before the recording started, I've followed your work for at least 15 years. I've been writing about the chemical imbalance theory of depression since then and, and over those many years and other researchers like uh, Dr. Elliot Ballenstein. And I think I'd like to just start with the history here. How did this idea that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance and particularly serotonin depletion or serotonin imbalance get started in the first place? Because it became widespread and pretty much anyone you would ask on the street would say that that's that that's what causes depression, but how did this even start? So that's a good question. So it starts in, in the medical community, it starts in the 1960s when drugs, certain drugs start to be proposed to have antidepressant properties and people are starting to think, oh, you know, maybe, maybe depression might, might have a chemical basis. And so they start to speculate about how these different drugs that they're using might be affecting uh, people's moods. And first of all, the, the focus is on noradrenaline. And, and actually for many years, the main focus was on noradrenaline. That was thought to be the key uh, brain chemical involved in mood. But um, serotonin was also proposed to be important in the 1960s and um, that is that idea is picked up in the 1980s when the SSRIs uh, start to come onto the market. Now, the other thing to say is that the medical profession, particularly psychiatrists, are keen on the idea um, of depression having a biological basis all the way through from the 1960s onwards. But the pharmaceutical industry are not interested in antidepressants or depression um, until the 1980s, because before that, they are busy making a lot of money selling vast, vast quantities of benzodiazepines. Those are the big sellers in the 1970s, uh, and very large numbers of um, Americans and Europeans were taking benzodiazepines at that time. And then in the 1980s, there's a real crisis um, concerning benzodiazepines, it becomes apparent that they 
are in fact addictive, even though they'd been marketed as being a non-addictive alternative to, uh, to barbiturates. And uh, it becomes apparent that they've been doled out um, like sweets to people who have social and circumstantial problems. So they start to get a really bad press. It becomes very difficult to market a drug for anxiety and the pharmaceutical industry switch to depression. And they also realize in, when they do that, when they start to launch these new SSRI antidepressants like Prozac, of course, is the first one um, or, or the first one that, that, that becomes successful launched in 1987. They also realized because the scandal about the benzodiazepine situation is still in the air at that time, they realized that they've got to sell these drugs with a different sort of story. Now, benzodiazepines were quite clearly drugs that alter someone's normal mental state, um, that uh, produce their, their mind-altering substances, and they basically replace people's underlying feelings with a drug-induced state. And that was clearly apparent to everyone. And that had, because the benzodiazepines had got such a bad press, that had brought the whole process of giving people drugs to essentially numb their emotions and numb them and distract them from their social problems into disrepute. It had brought that whole activity um, a bad name. And so the pharmaceutical industry, I believe, realized that they had to tell a different story. And that's when the pharmaceutical industry really got behind the idea of depression being a chemical imbalance and started to very widely promote that idea. That makes a lot of sense to me, knowing the history of uh, the pharmaceutical industry and other drugs that, that they've been involved with, um, with, with similar kind of uh, marketing-based in introductions. But let me, let me ask two questions as a follow-up and we can do the, uh, tackle the first one to begin with and then move on to the second one. Uh, I assume this wasn't just pulled out of thin air, that there was at least some early evidence or some, even if it was later proven to be false or incomplete, that, that, that led them in the direction of this chemical imbalance theory. You mentioned early on in the 50s, uh, there was some, uh, I, I believe there was a bacteriologist named Albert Zeller found that a, a, a drug that it was the, mo the first uh, monoamine oxidase inhibitor. And there were some other sort of indications that these, that these changes in, in chemicals in the brain were at least possibly contributing to depression. So is that kind of, did they just take a little bit of evidence that existed even though it was fragmentary and incomplete and blow that up? Or was there more going on at that point that justified that approach? So really, this idea comes from the fact that certain drugs were noticed to alter mood. There was never really any convincing evidence, independent evidence independent from the drug effects that there were abnormalities in brain chemicals, either serotonin or nor noradrenaline or anything else. So it really was uh, it, it was an assumption. There was an assumption made that if you're able to change mood by giving a chemical, therefore depression must depression and mood states must have a biological origin. So, so that, that's, that's really what happens. Um, wow. And the evidence that chemicals change mood, of course, is also it can be interpreted in different ways, as I suggested for the benzodiazepines. So the early drugs, that the first drugs that were um, thought of as being antidepressants were drugs that were being used for the treatment of tuberculosis in the old mental asylums. And if you look at the early papers on those drugs, they are clearly stimulant type substances with a profile that is similar to amphetamines. And people recognize that at the time. The early papers say these drugs are very like amphetamines. They keep people up. They make people psychotic. Then later papers start to talk about the drugs differently. And those stimulant effects appear in the small print at the end, you know, as a side effect rather than an effect of the drug. So of course these drugs were making people happy. They were making people energetic and you know alert because they were stimulants. 
so, so that's how they affected mood. Then other drugs come along that are, are called antidepressants that don't have stimulant effects. The tricyclic drugs actually had um, have sedative effects. Uh, and, and I think probably what's happening there is you're seeing a placebo effect affecting both patients, but also observers, also affecting the clinicians. This was a period where people were very enthusiastic about finding drugs for the treatment of mental disorders uh, and, and, and could easily convince themselves that they had, you know, had a drug that was effective and that they were noticing some beneficial um, effects in people. The first, the first paper about the um, first tricyclic antidepressant, imipramine, for example, um, describes it as curing impotence, curing sexual deviation, uh, as defined at the time. It's now recognised that imipramine causes impotence if, if it does anything to sexual function. So that was you know, a very odd observation and almost certainly not down to the imipramine. And that, I think that just shows you how enthusiastic people were about these drugs and how that coloured their perceptions of what they were doing. Yeah, it seems to me that this is a, a human bias overall. We, we prefer to know rather than to not know. And I think particularly prevalent in, in medicine. Uh, there's a quote I came across, I think it was in, it was from Elliot Baumstein in his book, a theory, he said, a theory that is wrong is considered preferable to admitting our ignorance. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that had something to do with it. Is you know, we didn't know what caused depression. It was affecting a lot of people. We didn't have a clear solution or, or treatment. And as soon as there was something that seemed like it could be a theory that would lead to particularly pharmaceutical treatment, that it was off to the races after that. I, I, yeah, I slightly dispute that. I think we did have a theory of depression. We just didn't have a biological theory of depression. Mm. You know, th mm -hmm. there was um, the old DSM defines depression. It defines all mental disorders as reactions to circumstances, to life circumstances. They're all called it, depression it, um, is a depressive reaction formation. That's that's how you know. So they are they are regarded as in a different way than we regard mental health problems today. Uh, and ordinary people, I think, have always um, held that view that emotional states like depression are um, consist of a reaction to circumstances. Obviously, coloured, you know, obviously with individual differences. You know, individual the way that individuals react to their circumstances is coloured by their. Uh, by their upbringing, by their history, and to some extent by their genetic makeup. So it's not that biology is completely irrelevant, but um, uh, but but it's not causing the emotion in the immediate term, in, in the sense that biological theories of depression want to suggest that it is. And um, this came out to me when I was looking at the material from the Defeat Depression campaign, which was a depression awareness campaign run in the UK in the early 1990s, partly funded by the pharmaceutical industry, particularly Eli Lilly, the makers of Prozac. And um, the people who were running that campaign commissioned a, a survey uh, before they got the campaign running. And the survey uncovered that most people believed that depression was caused by unemployment marriage breakdown, poverty. That was people's view of depression. They did not feel that it was caused by a chemical imbalance or a brain problem. Um, and that view was a view that uh, that campaign and the pharmaceutical industry deliberately set out to change and to override uh, so that they could instill in people views that would be conducive to them taking antidepressants. That's so fascinating. I want to come back to other potential biological contributors to depression later in the conversation that have been more recently studied and get your take on those. But for, I want to continue this conversation because I, that, that's the main focus of this interview. So we've we've established that there's there was never really solid evidence to support the chemical imbalance theory of depression. And now I want to ask you about evidence that contradicts directly that theory. Um, and maybe I can just ask you a few questions and you can tell me if these if these uh, are true or not or, or false. So does reducing uh, levels of norepinephrine, serotonin or dopamine produce depression? 
in humans? So I'll, I'll answer your question in a minute. But first of all, I'll say it's very difficult to prove a negative. Okay. So, so I, you know, I, I don't think it's the case that we have definitely, you know, we have evidence that depression is definitely not a biological condition. And we probably never will have that evidence because you'd have to have massive, massive studies for every area to, to be, you know, quite sure that it's, uh, that it's been disproved. What I think we can say confidently is that we have not proved that there is a biological basis to depression. And, and that was what people have, that is what people have been led to believe. So can you cause depression by reducing levels of, um, of brain chemicals in, in people who don't have depression to begin with? And the answer is no. Uh, for example, looking at serotonin, there have been several studies which have used uh, an experimental mixture of amino acids which lack the uh, amino acid that serotonin is made out of. That's called tryptophan. And if you give people this mixture of amino acids without the tryptophan, in order to make proteins, the body has to use up all the tryptophan that's available already. And therefore, there's not much available tryptophan to make serotonin and to cross into the brain to make serotonin in the brain. It's probably not a perfect procedure. It's probably doing other things as well, to be honest. But it, it, it does reliably reduce tryptophan levels um, and is thought, is thought to reduce serotonin levels. Anyway, that has been compared with giving people a, a drink of amino acids containing tryptophan and basically there's no evidence that that produces depression in people who don't have depression to begin with. There are some studies that show that it might make people's depression worse or bring on a temporary recurrence of symptoms in people who have had um, prior depression. But there are a number of problems with that. The first is that the number of people in those studies is very small, um, the, the ones that have been looked at in a, in a meta-analysis. No one's done a recent meta-analysis and the only studies that we found of that sort that have been done recently actually didn't show that, didn't show any, any effect in people with a history of depression. And then the other consideration is that these people uh, have been exposed to or are very likely to have been exposed to antidepressant drugs, which we know interfere with the serotonin system in some way and therefore may um, confound the, the, the results of those experiments. So basically from those what are called tryptophan depletion studies, there is no evidence that um, reducing serotonin produces depression. What about the flip side of that? Are Do drugs that raise serotonin and norepinephrine like amphetamines or cocaine alleviate depression reliably? That's a good question. So, so amphetamine, um, amphetamine. I, I think I, I think people don't realise actually how little we really know about what drugs do. So, SSRIs are meant to increase levels of serotonin, but actually we found some evidence, and it turns out there is quite a lot of evidence out there that certainly in the long term they probably reduce levels of serotonin, uh, and and they may well some of them at least have effects on other. Uh, neurochemicals that haven't really been very well researched or understood. Now, amphetamine is a drug that affects numerous brain chemicals, and we're not sure which ones are the, are the, key, are, are the key chemicals, um, but probably its main effects are produced by its effects on noradrenaline, which is, is associated with um, arousal, and probably to some extent dopamine as well, which is also associated with arousal. It also does uh, seem to increase levels of serotonin. Does amphetamine relieve depression? Well, amphetamine makes people makes people feel good, um, as, as other stimulants do, as cocaine does, while people are taking it. Does that mean it's curing depression? In my view, no. It does that. It has the same effect in anyone, whether you've got depression or not. It. Um, has effects in animals that are, you know, behavioral effects in animals that are consistent with its effects in humans. But if you give it to people with depression, there are some studies that show that amphetamine is an effective antidepressant, that, that it reduces depression rating scale scores better than a placebo or as well as other antidepressants. 
um, which shouldn't surprise us given that uh, given what we know about its profile of effects. Right. And the question, though, as you pointed out, is, is that a legitimate, is that a valid ongoing treatment for depression? Yeah. Uh, you know, considering the whole range of effects, side effects, et cetera. On a related note, I don't know that there's ever been a, a great explanation for why antidepressant drugs like SSRIs take so long to produce an elevation of mood. From, from my understanding, please correct me if I'm wrong, they produce their maximum elevation of serotonin in, in only a day or two and noradrenaline or norepinephrine, but it takes often several weeks for people to experience a full effect. Is that also an argument against the chemical imbalance theory in your mind, or is that not, is there some other explanation for why that is? So, so let's come on to what antidepressants do. So it, in my view, antidepressants do not um, have worthwhile effects on depression. If you look at placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants, the difference between an antidepressant and a placebo is minuscule. It's really, really small. It's two points on the 53 or 54 point commonly used Hamilton rating scale of depression. And if I could just interject, is, is that, Joanna, for mild, moderate and severe depression or are there differences across the intensity of depression? There's, some studies seem to find slightly higher differences in people with severe depression, but some studies don't. I would say the jury's still out on that and the average, the average difference is, is very small. And moreover, I think there are um, other explanations other than the pharmacological effects of the drug that may account for those differences, particularly the fact that people often know whether they're taking the antidepressant or the placebo, especially if they've taken antidepressants before, which many people in these trials have done. And we they're know- They're not truly blinded. So they're not truly blinded. They're, they're meant to be double blind trials, but they're not. And we know that the expectations that people have about what, what they're getting, about whether they're getting the drug or the placebo, have a very profound impact on the outcome of a study. So there's a very interesting study that compared sertraline, an SSRI antidepressant, with St. John's wort and a placebo. Now, in this study, people couldn't guess what they were on. And this was a negative study. There was no difference between the two drugs and the placebo. But when you asked people to guess what they were taking, the people who thought they were taking either St. John's water or sertraline did much better than people on the placebo. And the difference is around five to eight points difference, much bigger than the normal difference you would see between a drug and a placebo in a randomized controlled trial. So what that says to me is, there, we know there are some studies where people can guess correctly what they're taking, and it, if they can guess, they are going to you're going to see this expectation effect influence the outcome of the study as if it were the real you know a, 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 a true outcome of a, a true drug effect. So sorry to come back to your question. So so my view is that antidepressants um, actually are no better than placebo. And that what the, the reason why we have this idea that antidepressants take two weeks to work is that placebo takes two weeks to work. It takes two weeks for people to, for people's hope, the hope that people have and, and the, the good feeling people have from having been listened to and feeling that something's been done and something's going to help them to translate into an actual improvement in mood. And also, I think it takes two weeks for people to often to get out of the situation they're in that has made them depressed not everyone of course for everyone it takes much longer for many people it takes much longer but for some people two weeks is an amount of time where actually they can stand back they can think okay maybe I was feeling awful because of this and I could do this about it right it's got nothing to do with serotonin you know brain chemicals and how long they're taking to increase or anything like that it's 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 that's how long it takes for the treatment effect that's caused by placebo to actually happen. If you've listened to this show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. 
For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash element, that's L-M-N-T, to place an order and take advantage of this offer. Paleo Valley's beef sticks are definitely one of my favorite snacks. They're unlike anything else on the market. They're made from 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef and organic spices, and they are naturally fermented, which gives them this really amazing flavor. In fact, they were recently voted in Paleo Magazine as one of the top snacks of the year. One reason I love Paleo Valley is that they're committed to making the highest quality whole food products that are free of junk ingredients. They're compact and easy to take on the go, especially when I'm out in the mountains and away from civilization. Go to paleovalley.com slash chris and use the code CRESSER15 to get 15% off. Two things here. Uh, first, I completely agree and would say that I think the average person is not well-informed about the extent to which placebo plays a role in, in certainly in antidepressant research, but just in research in general. And this has been a, a fascination of mine for many years. And I've written a lot about this too. Ted Kapchuk, for example, who's, who's now at Harvard, but uh, you know, started his career as an acupuncturist, very interesting career tra- trajectory, and then ended up studying the, the effects of placebo uh, in antidepressant medications and many other contexts as well. But I remember a paper he published in 2009 in PLOS, Plus One, which you know, found that the, the, the extent of placebo response is, is large regardless of the intervention and is mostly associated with the study population and size, so, so that the greater the, the study population size, the greater the placebo effect, I think. What would you say, because what, what happens from when I, whenever I write articles about this, and I do want to be sensitive to people who are listening as well, I get sometimes vitriolic hate mail um, from individuals who insist that they have been helped by antidepressants, who know beyond a shadow of a doubt in their bones that it was the medication and not a placebo effect that, that, that helped them, and that take great offense to the suggestion that the drug that didn't have an effect and that depression is not biological because their interpretation of that often, I think, is that means depression is my fault, that there's something wrong with me, that I'm to blame for what's going on, this is all on my shoulders, and if I could, if only I was a better person or could live my life better, then I would not be depressed, and that that's that story is, you know, pretty heavy for most people to take on and not preferable to the idea that, that, that depression is caused by a chemical imbalance that the medication could fix. I'm, I'm no, I imagine you've encountered this as well, uh, whether from patients or re- other researchers or professionals in the field. So I'm just curious how you approach that, how you respond to that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a really good point. I mean, the first point I'd like to make is it seems to me, you know, it's, I'm not trying to say that people are gullible. You know, when people are really depressed and really distressed and hopeless, it is not at all surprising that being offered something that, that they are told might help them gives them hope and therefore helps them. So, you know, I, I, 
I don't think I, I'm really not trying to say that people are gullible. I think it's a very normal human response. So that's one point to make. The second point is I'm I'm not trying to stop people take anti, taking antidepressants, but I am trying to make sure that people are informed and they are that, that, that they are not misinformed and misled. And it is a fact that people have been misled into believing that there is a proven chemical abnormality in the brain. And that is that is not a, not a fact. Not, nothing of the sort has been proven. The evidence is completely um, inconsistent and, and very weak. But the, but the trouble is, of course, that because of this campaign that we were talking about earlier that was started by the pharmaceutical industry with the support of, of the medical profession, many people have been persuaded that that is the case and have come to develop an identity that, that they have something wrong with their brain and, and that they need uh, a drug or some, some other physical intervention to put that right. And so, of course, it's very challenging you know, when someone comes along and says, actually, that identity is found is not founded on fact, it's not founded on evidence. Um, of course, that is very challenging. But on the other hand, it's not a good thing to have a brain problem. And, and being told that actually your brain is normal, and your emotional responses are normal, is a good thing in the long run. It may be difficult to absorb because you've you know, been persuaded to adopt this identity that's been that, that's been sold to you, um, but actually, it is a good thing to know that there's nothing wrong with your brain. And yes, it does give us some responsibility for our moods, but that is also a good thing because that also shows, it, it, the flip side of having some responsibility is that there is something that we can do to help ourselves recover. We do have some agency. And, and I also think we all have emotional difficulties from time to time, um, and some more than others. I'm not, you know, as I said, there are individual differences, and there are some people for lots of different reasons, um, but, but often commonly because of terrible things that have happened to them in, in their past lives, um, struggle with their emotions more than others. And people like that deserve sympathy and support. It's, you know, not blame, not... Um, not you're responsible, get on with it, you know, we're washing our hands of you. People deserve support. You don't have to have a, I don't think that, you know, we, we people have to have a, a biological problem or a brain chemical problem in order to merit um, support from health or social services to get through a difficult time. Right. And what what, uh, you know, maybe an unintended or intended, I'm not sure, effect of this chemical imbalance theory is that they may be less likely to get that support than they would be otherwise if depression was looked at in a more holistic frame. In other words, if everyone is just bought into the theory that it's chemical imbalance and someone goes to the doctor complaining of depression, chances are they're just going to be prescribed an antidepressant and there's not going to be a referral to a psychologist or another mental health care provider, a psychiatrist, even if they do go to the psychiatrist. Nowadays, that, that is, has largely become a pharmacological interaction where it's just a question of what drug is going to be prescribed. Not many psychiatrists are not doing psychotherapy or, or providing that kind of support anymore, largely because of this. This notion has taken such, deep, uh, such a deep hold in our culture. Yes, I, I think uh, I think you're right. Um, uh, uh, certainly in the UK, a lot of people do get therapy. We do now have a therapy service on the National Health Service that is offered to everyone. But certainly, you know, certainly in the past, the option of offering people an antidepressant, I think, uh, has made has made it less likely that people will get other sorts of help. I also think it, um, you know, I think this whole Con this whole idea that depression is a is a biological brain based problem actually means that doctors, psychologists, everyone who's trying to help people with their problems is not really necessarily listening to the problem, because what they're doing is is saying, oh, you're someone with depression. You know, you are that they're, they're dealing with a label, 
rather than with an individual with a unique set of problems. Uh, and that's, in my view, that is how we need to help people with depression. We need to see them as unique people who have their own unique set of problems that they need support with, and it will be different for each individual. So this idea that there is such a thing as depression that has you know, a single sort of treatment or a single collection of treatments is, is you know, nonsensical to begin with. Yeah, I think that's such an important point. And uh, going back to what you said before about how, yes, when you take this information in, it can be, it can be difficult at first because it challenges a, a, an idea that you know may have had, and it, that actually, that idea in in some, at least at first glance, may in some way make make things easier. At least if you're if someone is interpreting depression as being their fault, it removes that blame from from their shoulders, and and so there is a kind of a way that I could see that, you know, that, that makes it easier. And I'm, I, I'm just, you know, I'm speaking personally as someone who suffered from depression in my life. So I know what it feels like. And I know, you know, I've been through this myself. Uh, so I'm not at all lacking in empathy for people who struggle with depression because I've, I've been through some pretty dark places um, personally, but I've also experienced the difference in, Inter interpreting that depression as something that is transitory or at least potentially transitory that is not a fundamental characteristic of who I am that doesn't define me like you said that isn't a problem in my brain that is only fixable by taking a pharmaceutical drug and one of the things that actually really empowered me was was your work and the work of other people who that debunked this theory and anger was actually something that helped me to get through this anger at pharmaceutical companies for perpetuating this story and and then realizing that I was a victim of that marketing push basically that that I took on this whole idea of what caused depression and for me it was it was it was short lived because I got exposed to your work and the work of others that, that disabused me of that of of that um myth but, you know, I think that, that anger can be actually a powerful motivating force in that situation where people realize that they've been willfully taken advantage of in order to be a profit center for these pharmaceutical companies who want to sell more drugs. And there's very little accountability for those companies for things like this, which is a whole nother conversation. We won't go down that road. But it seems to me that 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 awareness is key it's it's the starting point to a different way of of dealing with depression whatever that might be for each individual but without awareness you you can't even take that next step yeah absolutely i mean i've met i've met several people uh in the same sort of situation since the publication of the serotonin paper and and had many people contact me saying exactly what you're saying and and really feeling very disturbed and very angry about what had happened. Yeah. So that a good segue to the next question. How what is the reaction? You know, when I read that your paper, my first thought was, oh boy, <laughs> this is like uh, I hope um Joanna's doing okay. Like what has the response been like uh, from your peers in in the, in in your field and and just the public at large? You know, what's it been like since you published that paper? So the response from my peers from from the psychiatric profession has been basically to try and shut down the debate um, and to divert it um, and to do anything to stop people questioning the benefits of antidepressants and to stop people questioning the idea that they work by targeting some sort of biological abnormality. You know, so the tactic has been, oh yeah, we, of course we all knew that, it, you know, the serotonin theory was wrong, but, but it's more complicated than that. It's more complicated. Of course, you know, serotonin is involved in some way and so is this and so is, so is glutamate and so is dopamine and so is neuroinflammation and, you know, just, just to throw everything um, at it to give the impression that there is, you know, good research that, that depression has a, a biological basis. And I think most crucially to say, 
don't worry about antidepressants, carry on regardless. This doesn't change anything. Wow, that's, that's incredibly disappointing. I'm sure for you much more than, than me, but even for me as a, as a bystander, that's, you know, it's, it's wild to me that as professionals who are, you know, are trying to learn as much as we can about how to support our patients and make progress. I mean, I, I understand intellectually why there would be so much resistance. When you invest deeply in a theory and you become identified with that as a clinician and it's defined the way that you've treated patients perhaps for 5, 10, 20, 30 years, I get on a human level that that can be hard to pivot from because then what do you, t you know, oh my, have I been wrong for all these years and what am I going to do? And it's still very disappointing that that is the response to what I view as pre pretty much incontrovertible evidence that, that, that you presented in that paper and that they're not actually challenging the evidence. They're just, like you said, diverting and obfuscating rather than actually critiquing the arguments you made in the paper. I think it's extremely disappointing. And I am also feeling very angry because I do feel that actually there are people who in the profession who do not want the public to actually have access to the facts and uh, don't want the public to be able to appreciate the debate and discussion that, that exists around antidepressants. Yeah, it's, it's, so I think that, you know, and, and, and I, think, I think the bottom line is that, that they really, really don't want people to well, first of all, to question the idea that the depression is a, a bio, you know, at root a biological problem. And secondly, to understand antidepressants in the way that we used to understand benzodiazepines, to understand them as a, you know, emotion number, something that, um, that just, you know, changes anyone's mental state. Because people naturally would question whether that's a good idea. And when you start talking about drugs, you know, if you acknowledge that these drugs are not correcting a chemical imbalance, but they are drugs, they're not placebo tablets, you have to acknowledge that actually they're, they're creating a chemical imbalance. They're actually changing our normal brain chemistry. And I think the profession really don't want people to hear that statement because people will then rightly worry about what changing your normal brain chemistry might do to you, to, to your brain particularly if you keep taking these drugs that are causing these changes day in, day out for months and years on end. Um, and we do have some evidence that long-term use of antidepressants can do some really harmful and damaging things to the brain. Thankfully, not in everyone, I'm not, not saying this is, you know, uh, a, a universal experience, but, but they can. Um, they can cause really severe and difficult withdrawal symptoms and they can cause sexual dysfunction, which in some people appears to persist after people have stopped taking the, the medication. Yeah, along with specific populations like teenagers, which I'm particularly concerned about. And uh, before we do that, I just wanna ask one more question of, that I got get a lot when I write about this topic, which is this. Um, okay, so maybe antidepressants don't work by addressing chemical imbalance or serotonin, you know, shifting serotonin levels. Maybe they have pleiotropic effects like statin drugs, for example, that have, you know, maybe their main, when it was revealed that there might be some issues with like, you know, the statins are working even when cholesterol levels aren't changing as much as you would think they are, that they have these other pleiotropic effects, uh, which, you know, for people who are listening are effects that are different than maybe the primary effect um, that was intended with the drug. I know you've kind of already answered this question when you explained that antidepressants don't work better than placebo on, on the global level, but what would you say to this argument or this idea that their antidepressants might help some people because of a pleiotropic effect? Since we published the serotonin theory, there seems to be you know, more and more emphasis on other possible biological theories of what antidepressants might be doing. And one of the popular ones, which also ties into the use of uh, psychedelics that, that are becoming very fashionable now, is the idea that they stimulate neurogenesis and that there's some deficiency of neurogenesis in depression. There is no evidence for this. Um, there are, there are some, some um, mostly animal studies showing possible increase in markers of neurogenesis, but there are many explanations for that. And one explanation, is that if you damage the brain 
you um, the, the brain naturally produces you know neurogenesis to compensate for the damage so actually finding indicators of neurogenesis is not necessarily a good thing it might indicate that the drugs are damaging the brain um, but actually the majority of evidence comes from studies looking at the size of the hippocampus some and some studies suggest that the hippocampus uh, is uh, reduced in people with depression um, some studies don't none of these studies have effectively ruled out drug treatment as a possible cause um, and you know that's basically what the evidence comes down to so this is you know I think calling this a theory is actually being you know doing it more respect and justice than it deserves it's a speculation along with many other speculations um, which has you know much weaker uh, evidence than there was for the serotonin theory and that didn't stack up and the evidence for all these theories is very unlikely to stack up and in a way the people putting these theories forward I think many of them probably know that and they don't care they just know that if they put something out there then they can keep on convincing people that bio, that depression is biological and that they need to keep take a drug to deal with it, and that's the that's the main function of the theory, not not actually really to uh, explain anything. Right. Even if that's not what people intend, that is certainly the effect of putting all those these ideas out there. If one were cynical, one could say it's more of a marketing campaign than a, than a, than a, a legitimate scientific theory that's based in published peer-reviewed evidence. Let's talk a little bit about some of the poss you know, possible long-term negative effects of, of SSRIs, because I, I at least want to spend a few minutes on this, because as you pointed out, a lot of people are under the mistaken impression that these drugs are completely safe, they've been used for decades, Every doctor on, in every practice prescribes them. So how, how could it be possible that they would have serious long-term side effects and risk? And if you could address you know, any, the general population and then any specific populations that are particular concern, like teenagers, that would be great. Yeah, so antidepressants have a range of side effects or adverse effects like any drug. And uh, immediately speaking, they probably, they're probably less less impairing to take than some other drugs prescribed for mental health problems such as antipsychotics which are more immediately noticeable slow you down and um and, and have uh, lots of function impairing effects uh, and modern antidepressants like ssris at least produce less of that sort of effect but nevertheless they do have immediate effects um, and one of the very well recognized immediate effects they have is sexual dysfunction. And they, they interfere with sexual function in almost every way that you could think of. Um, they cause impotence, delayed ejaculation, and reduce genital sensitivity. And this seems to probably correlate with their ability to cause emotional blunting as well. So they are drugs that reduce sensitivity both physically and uh, emotionally. So it's well recognized that they have these sexual effects um, in, in a very large proportion of people who take them, uh, 60%, um, it says in, in a few studies, and the SSRIs are the particular culprits here. Um, other, other antidepressants are, have less impact on sexual functioning, although they do have some, most of them. So, so we recognize that they have these effects in the short term. Um, and what has be, been coming out over the last few years is that in some people, these effects do not go away when you stop taking the drug and seem to go on for years in some cases, possibly getting better gradually over the years, but we just don't know. We don't have enough really sort of long-term or follow-up evidence. So obviously this is a real worry with lots of young people and teenagers taking these drugs. And I, I suspect that very, very few doctors are telling people about this. I think very few doctors are actually aware of it. And I think that's partly because there does seem to be in the medical literature, you know, an inclination to publish all these, you know, rosy figures and lots of studies about the benefits of drugs and a much greater reluctance to publish anything that, that shows negative effects of drugs. Um, or to yeah. fund research that looks at negative effects of drugs. So often these effects start with, you know, we only find out about them sometimes years down the line when people are report, you know, start reporting them. 
as well as the sexual side effects I mentioned earlier that the uh, it is now well recognized again that antidepressants cause withdrawal effects. And in many people, these will not be problematic, but in some people they are problematic um, and uh, really can make it very difficult to come off the drugs. So, and in some people, these, these effects, even when they've come off the drugs and even when they've come off the drugs quite slowly, in some cases, these effects can go on for months and sometimes years. And I think both of these things just highlight that the brain is a very delicate organ and we really should not have been messing around with it, with drugs, you know, whose long term effects we had not properly tested. And people really need to know this information. You know, they need to be very, very careful before they take drugs that change the normal state of our brain chemistry and the normal state of our brain functioning. Would you argue that that's particularly true for the developing brain in teenagers and, and that that population is even more susceptible to these impacts? Absolutely. I don't know whether we have evidence about antidepressant side effects in young people, but we certainly have evidence on antipsychotics drugs that there that side effects in young people of antipsychotics are uh, more more common and more severe. So uh, absolutely it's a real worry with the developing brain. And I think there's also a, I, I, there's also a psychological issue with giving antidepressants to people who are still maturing emotionally. You know, I've talked about how they are emotionally blocking, you know, and therefore maybe block the emotions that we need to go through in order to, you, you know, to, to learn to manage ourselves and manage our emotions. And, and also I think it just gives a really, particularly when you're giving them to, you know, to children, gives a, a really dangerous message that, you know, there's something wrong with you. There's, you're flawed. You're biologically flawed, and you need to take something. Yes. So this has been just incredibly illuminating. I'm so grateful for you spending your time with us. And I, I want to finish, and I'm sure you would agree with me, by just mentioning that if, if you're listening to this, you're taking antidepressant drugs, and you're now questioning whether that's a good idea, please don't stop them immediately on your own without consulting with your physician or, or prescribing clinician, whoever's doing that. There are uh, some risks to doing that cold turkey. And as you know, Dr. Moncrief, I'm going to have Dr. Mark Horowitz as a guest in a few weeks, um, who is an expert in how to safely taper off of these, these drugs, which is another thing, incidentally, that I found very low in awareness about in, in the general medical community and that, that patients are often not given informed consent about how difficult it might be to get off the drugs and how long it might actually take to do that safely and how to even get proper guidance for how to do that. So I hope that with the interview with Dr. Horowitz, we can you know, shed further light on that. But in the meantime, please don't make any decisions without consulting your, your healthcare provider. Is there anything you would like to add about that? Yes, just just that for people who've been on antidepressants for, you know, any length of time, greater than a few months, really, you, you need to be very careful about reducing them and make sure you reduce them very slowly um, so that you don't end up with, uh, you know, with severe withdrawal symptoms. Great. Are you working on any anything else right now in this? Uh, I, I imagine you might need a little break after that, that paper that you just published, but any any other lines of investigation or areas that you're focusing on now? Um, I'm, I'm involved in various projects looking at, uh, look, looking in more detail at withdrawal effects and, and, you know, whether they're more severe in people who've been on medication for longer and that sort of thing, what, what might help people, bend, you know, get off them more easily. And I'm also trying to write a book about the whole experience of having published this paper because because, <laughs> yeah. because as I've described I feel so shocked and angry about the response to it yeah well I you know for what it's worth on a personal level I want to thank you because I, I personally benefited from your work and help, helping to debunk some of the myths around what causes depression and then I can speak for the thousands of patients that I've treated over the last 15 years that have benefited from that. And then I think also the hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people who 
listen to this podcast and read the, the, the blog that have directly benefited from your work. So if, if that's any consolation, we are very grateful for you persisting over so many years against a lot of opposition and, and as you pointed out, not a, a welcoming uh, and solicitous uh, reception to this work. It's it's very important and valuable. So I'm, I genuinely want to thank you for it. Thank you, Chris, and, and thank you for you know trying to get the message out there to more people because I think that's so important. So yeah, thank you for helping me to do that. And thanks everybody for listening to the show. Keep sending your questions in to chriscresser.com/podcastquestion, and we'll see you next time. That's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.